Hello, I am Joseph Dutey. I am a UX designer based in Geneva, Switzerland. I am specialized in enterprise UX and I am the seeker. Hi, I'm Sophia Prater. I consider myself the chief evangelist for object-oriented UX. I'm based here in the North Georgia mountains. I am the founder and CEO of Rewired UX, and I am the giver. Welcome to 24 Minutes of UX, a grassroots, community-driven podcast series about user experience, featuring UX professionals from around the world. The idea is simple. We connect seekers of UX wisdom with givers of UX wisdom. We are your hosts, Jesse Anton and Peter Horvat. Today, our guests will talk about object-oriented UX, or OOUX for short. This idea is rooted in practice, starting from a project for CNN in 2012. Since then, it has evolved into a repeatable approach, helping UXers tackle any type of app, site, or software. Grooming this OOUX approach since the beginning is today's giver of advice, Sophia Prater. As a practitioner and trainer, she has worked with companies like CNN, Delta Airlines, AT&T, Coca-Cola, and many others. We also welcome our seeker of advice, Joseph Dutte. He is UX design lead at Whitespace in Geneva, Switzerland, and has worked with clients in banking such as EFG and Pictet, as well as the pharmaceutical giant GSK. Now we pass the mic over to Sophia and Joseph. So, Sophia, for those of us who are maybe not yet familiar with object-oriented UX, could you maybe explain briefly what it is? Object-oriented UX is really all about the nouns. We are very verb-focused in our industry of UX. I often say that we are still thinking procedurally in the same way that developers were working procedurally before the object-oriented programming revolution. There's a common misconception that object-oriented UX is a very technical, non-user-centered methodology. Actually, that couldn't be further from the truth. It is a nice icing on the cake that object-oriented UX actually helps you communicate with your developers much better because they are already working usually in an object-oriented way. It's not just our developers that are object-oriented. Human beings are object-oriented as well. To take action in any environment, we have to understand that environment. To understand our environment, though, now there's a lot of psychology that shows this, we need to understand the objects within the environment. As our users come to any environment, whether that is digital or physical, what our brains are trying to do is identify the objects, identify the relationships between the objects, identify the status of these objects. And then you start thinking, what can I do with these objects? If you think about going into a coffee shop, and if you're imagining this in your head, you're probably thinking you have tables and chairs and a bar with some people behind it. Now, imagine this is a different type of coffee shop. Maybe it's like a coffee shop in Amsterdam. You walk in this coffee shop and you can't tell the difference between the tables and the chairs and the people. And maybe only with intense concentration you can do that. So with intense concentration, you say, all right, I've identified a chair, but I can't quite tell if that chair is occupied or not. It takes more slow thinking, intense concentration to say, okay, this is an unoccupied chair. You sit in that chair and you, again, work very hard to identify a table. But you can't tell if that table that you identified actually goes with the chair that you're sitting in. So maybe you end up putting your laptop on a table that's all the way across the coffee shop. This would be a very difficult environment to operate in. 
And unfortunately, this is often the type of digital environments that we create for our users, where they come into the environment and it's not clear what the objects are. I am all about users being able to get stuff done in environments. Like this is why we create software is to turn our users into superheroes, right? So that they can do stuff that they actually can't do in the physical environment. But what we end up doing when we're released from the laws of physics is we create these places where users can't actually understand the environment that they're in. So object-oriented UX is all about just defining your objects first and then getting to the actions and figuring out what actions do users want to take on those objects. You took the example of a coffee shop and I like it because it's familiar and we all know what a coffee shop looks like. But in big companies, of course, the objects are much more complex and not as familiar as a coffee table or a chair. Do you have maybe an example of a very complex project where you could apply object-oriented UX and it gave really good results? Yeah, definitely. The more abstract our objects are, the more we need to concretize those objects because we often create abstractions of abstractions of abstractions. Some of my clients have been in finance. So money is an abstraction. It's abstracting, it's representing something. A, a dollar bill, um, a euro is abstracting trading like pigs in gold, right? So like bartering. It's really very difficult to represent visually. That's, yeah, for sure. Yes, we've used shells before and then we started using coins. Now we've taken our money digitally. So even a savings account, now we have two levels of abstraction in a savings account. Then we go into something like an investment account. So this is a special type of savings account with some abstract rules around it or a credit card, another type of money with abstract rules around it. So we have, and this is so common in enterprise environments where we have all these abstract rules, hidden rules. Andrew Hinton would call them hidden rules. I always recommend his book, Understanding Context. When we have all of these hidden rules, it becomes very difficult for a user to understand what's going on. So we go to the investment account and then we can go even further and we take about an option or a future. We have like five levels of abstraction here. So when we get to these higher levels of abstraction, it's even harder for a user to understand these places that we're creating with these really abstract sort of information objects with all these hidden rules. So that's when it's even more important to bring in some metaphor and concretize and kind of create edges around these things so they feel like you can manipulate them. And some of those hidden rules are not so hidden. Really all of my clients, but especially my enterprise clients, they come to me, their big challenge is data. Their data is a mess. So it's not just this like, from a user experience perspective, we can create better software by thinking about our objects. But even from a collaboration and a business standpoint, just getting a hold of your data is a huge problem. So there's a lot of data transferring. And if that data is not clean, that's going to be a problem. You get duplicated data, you get manual entry, and really just the data becomes a big headache. So object-oriented UX is really, really great, whether you're in finance, healthcare, what they need to do is make sure that the data makes sense and make sure that the data is actually user-centered. And we can do that through object-oriented UX, through object mapping, where basically we're creating a visual scheme of the data model in a way that our subject matter experts can come in and help us with it, in a way that our stakeholders can come in and even our users can come in without actually looking at wireframes. And the problem with pictures is we're confounding design and information. You know, we go back to like HTML and CSS, that original battle of separating HTML and CSS. We knew we wanted to take information and display. We wanted to separate them. This is doing that, basically. So our subject matter experts and our stakeholders aren't trying to review a wireframe. 
where really they should be reviewing the data model and bringing in all their expertise about business rules. This is how we can get them in early by laying all the data out on the table in sticky notes in a way that they can understand so that they can provide really good feedback. This method helps the UX designer. Would you say that it also helps the client express this mental model they have with all this abstract information and the abstract relationships between objects? Yes, 100%. What you can do is you can make sure that you get the objects right and you're labeling them correctly. And you're all also just like speaking the same language. I mean, this is often communication in a, in a large enterprise environment where you have different teams and different silos and you come together and you try to collaborate and like take an HR example, depending on what team you're on, roles and positions and jobs are used very differently and relate to each other in different ways. And this becomes very hard to collaborate when you're like not the fundamental things of like an HR platform. The different teams are using these words differently. Does a position have multiple jobs or does a job have multiple positions? (laughs) These are very, very important things to understand if you're going to design software around it. You mentioned this problem that different employees in the same company name the same thing differently. But I also noticed that in big companies, usually the history of the company is made of mergers and acquisitions. So you end up with different teams in the same company who even have different processes to reach the same goal. And not only do they give a different name to the thing, but they also really do things differently. So I'm really interested. How can object-oriented UX help also understand these different processes, but maybe also try to harmonize them so that at the end you can build a system that only follows one process, you simplify a little bit this complexity of having several processes for the same thing. If I could pull like one piece of the object-oriented UX process would be the CTA matrix. We got lots of kind of artifacts that we use in an object-oriented UX and particularly the ORCA process. And ORCA stands for Objects, Relationships, CTAs, and Attributes. And we basically iterate on those things over and over and over again to get to the heart of the matter and really get clarity before we start prototyping. The C of the ORCA, that's calls to action. And that's really thinking about what are the affordances of the object? This particular object, what can different users do to this object? So the CTA matrix, usually you have your objects kind of along the y-axis. So if we're thinking that that HR example, I might have jobs, positions, teams, and people are maybe our main objects. And then across the x-axis, what we'll usually do is put different user roles, different user types. You could potentially do that for actually instead of different user types, put different departments or different teams as well. If it's a merger, even different companies along the x-axis. So you got objects along the y-axis and then other entities along the x-axis. And then in the intersections, you're basically brainstorming or auditing what are all the things that a user can do. So what are all the processes around each of these objects? And that could be internal or external. That could be an internal admin. Sometimes even the system becomes a agent. So when we have AI doing fun things or algorithms doing fun things, we actually consider the system as an agent in this matrix. And we're just thinking about like, okay, so a job. We have one person is the HR professional. What are they going to do? They need to post a job. So we have this like post job. We maybe have a job approval system. So the, the job might be created and then approved and then it can get posted. And then maybe the system is actually pushing that job out to various platforms automatically. So maybe it's like publishes it automatically to LinkedIn. So we're actually thinking about what are all the processes around the job object versus just saying, what are all our processes? Full stop. 
So when we start framing it around object, this is a really great way to break down complexity and also break down diffusion of responsibility. <laughs> so making sure we're really clear about who is doing what and who's responsible for which object and the, the processes around each object. Okay, great. Now that you have identified your objects and uh, their relationships and the actions and their attributes, I know that object-oriented UX is very powerful to build the navigation as well because you, you will use these relationships between objects to navigate. I take Facebook as an example because Facebook has a very strong object-oriented approach. You basically navigate from one object to another, you jump to an object to a linked object, and you can really navigate like this without an end. You, you wander around, you explore the content. And I think it works great for this kind of system because you don't have time pressure, you don't have a specific process to accomplish. But I find it then more challenging when we are building professional systems where users have to accomplish a task and they are following a workflow. How would you say that object-oriented UX could help as well defining the navigation in this enterprise world where you want your users to accomplish a task at the end? Right. I love that question. Are we letting them sort of wander around too much, the, just kind of like aimlessly clicking from thing to thing because we've connected it in this way that will mimic the user's mental model? So we want to make sure that we have those real-world connections. One of my longest-running clients was at EdTech Software. So the end user was teachers. One of the main problems is the lack of connection between the objects. So a teacher and his or her mental model has a very strong connection between the class and the student, right? Class has many students, a student has one to many classes. This is just part of the teacher's world. The teachers would go into the software and they would go to the class detail page and they would see all the assignments from the class and they wouldn't see students. Student and the class was connected, but it was only connected one way. You had to go to the student to see the classes that the student was in, but from the class, you couldn't see which students were in the class. And it drove them completely crazy. <laughs> so, And I see this a lot. What we want to do is we want to make sure that all those connections are we've prioritized those connections. And those connections are based on how the user just thinks about the problem domain. How does the user think about this problem domain? Build those connections into the software. And then to get specific on your question, what we need to do is we need to separate two different types of navigation. There's wandering exploration. And then there's the navigation that happens on the other side of a CTA. Once I've initiated some sort of transaction, once I start the conversation with the system and I'm trying to get something done, not just get to the thing that I want to do too. And we want to make sure it's really easy to get to the thing that I want to do too and really clear and like, I am taking action on this thing right now. Because every action that we take, every transaction, there's always a direct object. I've asked hundreds and hundreds of people, like, tell me what action happens on the internet or on any piece of software that doesn't have a direct object to it. Even creating an account. I am creating an instance of myself. So that is the direct object. So creation definitely has a direct object as well. We do want to separate these two types of navigation. And we never, if somebody is on the other side of a CTA in a transaction and their objects involved, we never want to force them through the transaction. I actually believe that that is unethical. And that would be a dark pattern to say like, no, there, here's this object, but we're not going to link you to it because you're stuck in this transaction now. Now, we don't want to have a bunch of shiny objects that people can accidentally click on. So we're probably going to be less liberal. But take the example of the cart and checkout. I can be in the middle of a checkout flow, all right, and they want me to get through that. They don't want me to get distracted. And I have seen checkout flows before where I can see the products, but I can't click on them. 
Now, let's say I'm in the middle of that process and I all of a sudden have second thoughts of the product. And I need to go back and check, like, did I get the right size? Like, let me go back to the size chart or wait a second. Like, is this the right part for my car? Like, I need to go back to the detail screen. And if I'm in that flow and they don't let me click on that, I'm just going to be mad. I'm going to open up another tab. I'm going to search it and I'm going to find that product. And we don't want to we don't want to force people to do that. If it's my grandmother or something trying to go through the process and she thinks, wait a second, Is this the product that I want, but I've prevented her because in the spirit of getting her through the flow, I've actually put walls up. I think that that would be a dark pattern and I would recommend staying away from that. The summary of this is let's separate this idea of getting to the object through relationships, getting to the right instance of the right object, understanding that instance of the object, and then interacting with that object. Yes, we want to be a little bit less liberal, but we don't want to we don't want to break the mental model of those connections. We don't want to sever those really important connections. You want the money of the client, but you want his satisfaction as well, right? And loyalty. And loyalty, yes. I notice that quite often when a, a big company decides to replace or modernize uh, its internal system, by default, they take a tool-oriented approach because they already have tools in place and so it's the natural way to, to just replace a tool by another tool or maybe they are inspired by some famous application suits like google workspace or microsoft office and also maybe because they they need to divide a big project into smaller pieces that are manageable but the, for the ux designer this tool-oriented approach it creates silos and it makes it really difficult to define a consistent object model because each tool each silo will will have its own object its own definition have you experienced this situation in the past where the system is composed of several tools but you want to get this consistency of the objects between the tools. When you say a tool-oriented approach, would that be, would you say a tool is a feature? Like an independent program, or an independent application, but within the same ecosystem. You would basically identify the same objects, right, but the right. fact that they are separate applications means that different teams are working on them. It's maybe difficult to communicate and to share the same definition of the objects between the different teams who work on the different applications. Going back to the HR example, you might have one tool for hiring and another tool for payroll. And the person that you hired now get, has to get paid, but they might need to get re-entered into the system because we can't just say like, oh, let's just take this person. This is just a person, a human being, but they're an applicant over here and they're an employee over here, but it's the same freaking person. And you might want some of that data from the hiring process to carry over into their employee dossier. Yes, this is a huge problem. This is probably, this is this is the problem and how we basically break down complexity. This, this, is, this is what I see. It's either by feature or um, often by even segment in the journey map. I've seen that before. Been working with, let's say, a, a large online retailer, they are segmenting their team based on browse, buy, and manage. So these kind of areas of the journey map, I'm browsing and finding the thing, and then I'm purchasing the thing, and then I'm managing my purchases. The problem with that is the product goes all the way through. And then you get all these inconsistencies with the product or our, our HR example or our ed tech example. We get all these inconsistencies with objects. In my perfect world, this is kind of a like, you need to reorg answer, which I know is kind of tough. But I would love to see teams organized by object or suite of objects. 
So let's take HR. I might have a team that's responsible for the job and the position object because they're kind of similar. And there's like a very close relationship between the job and the position. So there's like a job position role team. They're all locked into each other. And the role actually goes from the hiring suite to the payroll suite or even the job too. Like, right. This is what you were supposed to get paid. And this is all basically the contract and how much how much sick time you're supposed to get, all of that information that's in your contract as you're getting hired needs to kind of go over to once you're getting paid and once you're like your intranet and you're asking for vacation and that kind of thing. There should be communication between those different sides of the coin, so to speak. If we had a team for job, position, and role and another team that just they're just they're, they're just the person object. They're responsible for the person object and maybe the team object as well. And then maybe there's another one like paychecks and company policy. And as a team, maybe you actually rotate. So maybe you spend six months on each team and you are constantly rotating around. So you get an idea on what's going on on the other teams, but you're responsible for that object and how that object manifests across the entire ecosystem of your company. You're responsible for the APIs that have to do with it. And then when you have some sort of interface where we're like, okay, in this particular part of the system, job and person are highly interacting. Let's meet with the jobs team. So that's kind of how I see us dividing complexity is by object and really owning that. The other thing I will say to that is having dedicated OUXers on your design systems team. So this becomes your systems team. And we have design systems and UX systems. And that's really what OOUX is about. It's your UX system. And that OOUXer is kind of overseeing all of this. And that is part of the onboarding. So that's really what I see is your as you're onboarding new people, they sit on that that design system, UX system team. So to get like a really good lay of the land. And those are the people that like manage the, you know, the entire enterprise object map and system model. And like, they just have high level visibility into all of these pieces. And then you have specialty teams based on object. That's my vision of the future. <laughs> it's great. I really love it. That that really solves the problem. If you have a team organized by object or family of objects, the single source of truth is in this team. And any process in the company that needs to interact with this object will get the same information from the same team and the same definition of the object. Yeah, and it will really would bring down some walls, even from the user experience perspective. So not just internal working, but thinking about like having an HR solution where I just go into that HR solution and there's no like, I'm going into hiring now and I'm going into payroll now. I go in and I see the things that are part of this mental model as far as a company. I see people, I see teams, I see jobs, and maybe the how we sell actually, like how do we actually sell our products and break up our products could also be by objects or things that you can do to the object. So I even see business models changing instead of saying like, because even from a user experience perspective, that's not often how I want to buy software. It's not like this module of the software and this module of the software. I think that it could be basically how robust your visibility and your capabilities on each object are. The business model of the company could also follow this natural mental model of human beings who think in terms of objects first and then in terms of what they can do with the objects. Yeah, what a concept. I mean, you have the job, say you just buy the payroll, but you don't buy the hiring part. That might be how it would work today. I still have a concept of a job and just like the payroll suite. The job still exists there, but it's just very rudimentary. 
And then it can show me like, hey, if you want to upgrade to the hiring part, like here's what all the other things that a job can do for you. Here's the more visibility. Here's more actions you can take on it. The system actually doesn't change. It just becomes more robust in areas. And I'm not tacking on features. I'm basically elevating certain objects to be more powerful. Is it one of the next things coming with object-oriented UX to propose not only a framework for designers, but a framework for business models for companies to... Oh my gosh, organizational design? Yeah. Ah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I've actually, I started doing some writing on that about like what would be the the OOUX version of that, how I would see an organization maturing. And this is kind of what I was thinking of. Maybe somebody will start doing that. I don't know if that's me though. <laughs> If the people who listen to us uh, want to know more about what your activity, what's coming next, you want to give them some hints on where to find the information? Definitely a place to start is OOUX.com. There's a resources tab there. And there's a button for join the fam. That gives you all the links to the newsletter. We have an OOUX happy hour, the podcast as well. Last year, we started the OOUX certification program. So we are about to start our fourth cohort of that. That starts on March 15th. And again, just go to OOUX.com, click on certification. All the information is there about that. Thank you very much, Sophia. It was really interesting and helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really fun conversation. A big thank you to our guests, Sophia Prater and Joseph Dutte. If you never heard of object-oriented UX, hopefully this whets your appetite for more. And if you did know about it, hopefully now you can use or promote it with even more confidence. And thank you, our listeners, for being here and spreading the message of 24 Minutes of UX. If you are interested in being a seeker or a giver on this show, reach out on 24minutesofux.com. This podcast would not exist without our participants, who are practitioners just like you. So we are looking forward to hearing from you. And until next time, keep, keep calm, calm and UX on. on.